0: Please turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. I just want you to know that um, I, don't, I don't dislike bunnies. I like bunnies. Actually, I, mean, I really I like bunnies, especially I like the bunnies that run around in my, my yard because I don't have to feed them. You know, they're really cute and I can watch them. So I like bunnies a lot more than cats. Uh, bunnies are bunnies are great. Uh, so I want you to know I'm not I'm not anti bunny, but I do think it's really remarkable how the secular world has completely taken over uh, the holiday of Easter. I was walking through Kroger this last week. And, um, you know, I saw marshmallow bunnies, and I saw uh, chocolate bunnies, I saw all these bunnies absolutely river and eggs and stuff like that, but I didn't see any tombs, right? I was looking for chocolate tombs or marshmallow tombs, but there weren't any. There weren't any empty tombs or full tombs made of anything. There there was nothing there. It was just, it was bunnies everywhere. And, you know, Christians, we kind of, we lament the fact that the secular world has taken over Christmas, but really it's taken over Easter even more so, right? And I think that's because the word Easter in English doesn't really convey anything about the significance of this day to us. Right? The, the day is about resurrection. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Easter doesn't really connect that idea to us at all. And so when we begin to proclaim resurrection as well in a secular world, uh, as Mike prayed earlier, there's this, this pushback, like, seriously? Now, I was raised in a Christian home. And I, I became a believer at a very early age. But then, when I hit my teenage years, I began to wonder: Do I really believe this? I mean, do I really believe this for myself, or do I believe it because I was raised in a Christian family, and now I've just inherited all of these things? And so, I, I actually set out on a course of intentionally doubting my faith. So you know, I need to know that this is reasonable and reliable. And so I dug deeply into the resurrection itself, because I realized early on that if the resurrection was not true, then Christian faith as a whole should just be swept aside. And so I dug very deeply into the resurrection. I read a lot of books about the resurrection. One in particular by Josh McDowell, Resurrection Factor, was profound in its, its impact on my life. And I became convinced through the course of this study that the resurrection was true. That it was valid, that it was the most reasonable explanation for the fact that there was no body in the tomb on Easter morning. And maybe this morning uh, you're a little like me. Maybe you inherited a lot of that, uh, but you've continuously had these doubts that kind of nag you through life. And maybe you need to go through that period of time where you wrestle. With the Lord, And you wrestle with this idea of resurrection, whether it's actually true or not true. Or, or maybe you came this morning and uh, it's not that you doubt it, you, just, you, don't, you don't buy it at all. You just, you just happened to come in this morning because it's Easter and a friend drove you along or parents, you know, or family some, somehow you just landed here because, you know, once or twice a year you have to fulfill your obligation and here you are. And you wonder, well, why do these people actually gather and sing and go rah-rah, Jesus rose from the dead after all? I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about actually two things. I want to talk about the reality of the resurrection. Why uh, I think that it's true. It's real. But then second, why is it relevant? Because I think there are actually a lot of believers in Jesus Christ. They believe in the resurrection. But they haven't really reckoned in a sense with with the relevance. Does this really uh, change anything practically in my life? So we're going to look at the resurrection this morning. Probably not surprised when you walked in on an Easter morning, that that's what we'd focus on. We're going to look at, actually, from 1 Corinthians 15. Outside of the Gospels, this is the most important passage about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, I want you to begin reading with me 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to... To the scriptures. Uh, Paul starts by addressing the historicity or the reality of the resurrection. He begins specifically by recounting the events. What happened first? Well, Jesus died. He said, I want to deliver to you as of first importance what I received and what I have learned, and it's this first and foremost, Jesus died. And how do we know that he really died? We know that he really died because he was buried. When he was placed into the tomb after being uh, beaten and whipped and crucified, then he was stuck into this cold, dark tomb. And then, on the third day, he was raised. And for most of the audience that Paul preached to, in his day, they went, Err, <laughs> Resurrection? Seriously? You remember when he was preaching in Athens? He's talking about resurrection, and they're all kind of rolling with him because they think he's talking about a God-named resurrection. But when they realize, no, he's actually talking about dead people coming back to life, they said, Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul, you're... You're crazy. You're absolutely mad. See, because the Greek audience that he often preached to is a lot more like our secular audience today. Their worldview is more similar to ours. They said to themselves, wait, logically this makes no sense whatsoever because we've never seen a resurrection. We've never seen someone go into the grave and come out of the grave. Therefore, it can't happen. And philosophically, they really didn't want a resurrection. Because in their minds, they they looked around and they saw people uh, getting sick and getting injured and not healing and aging and dying. And they said to themselves, why actually would would we want a bodily resurrection? This body is a broken, horrible thing. What's appealing about a bodily resurrection. That's where their philosophy of dualism really emerged from, this observation of decaying and dying bodies. They said, look, the body really is it's evil, it's bad. It's something that you want to get rid of. The inner man, the soul, the spirit of man, well, that's something that's wonderful and, and, and good. But the body, why would we want it? And so they heard these, this talk of resurrection. They said, whoa, no, we can't buy that. And so everywhere that Paul went, he had to validate these, this historical sequence of events. And he offers them several proofs. Let's read again, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Second, that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. A few have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul says, uh, here's your, your first validation, it's that the resurrection was predicted. He said, this happened according to the scripture, this happened according to scripture, it happened according to scripture. Old Testament, as well as the predictions of Jesus himself, that he would die, that he would be buried, that he would rise from the dead, right? He told it over and over and over again. In fact, he told his disciples on so many occasions, but what happened every time that he told them? You, uh, w- whatever, Jesus. Now, who's greatest among us, <laughs> right? I mean, it never really sunk in. They didn't buy it. In fact, even after he had risen from the dead, they didn't believe it. Right? They didn't believe it. Uh, even when uh, Mary and some of the other ladies came back and they said, no, we, he's not in the tomb. The tomb is empty. We saw an angel. The angel said he'd risen, just as he said. And they said, no, impossible. I want you to keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 15 and turn to the book of Luke Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. There's a wonderful encounter that Jesus has with some of his disciples after he has been raised from the dead. And uh, they have heard the stories that he has raised from the dead, but they're still not believing that he was raised from the dead. And so they're walk, two of his disciples are walking around along this road to Emmaus, and Jesus just kind of appears, and all of a sudden he's walking with them. And he said, what are you guys talking about? He said, what do you think we're talking about? Are you completely clueless? about what has been happening in Jerusalem. Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, we thought he was the one, we thought he was the Messiah, but then, then he died, he, he was buried, and some among us say that he, he rose from the dead, but we just can't believe it. We just can't buy this. Verse 21. In fact, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened, but also some women among us amazed us, When they were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but they did not see him. Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning... In Genesis with Moses and through all of the prophets until Malachi, he explained to them the things concerning himself in Scripture. And so a significant part of Paul's preaching was: let me show you how all of this was predicted hundreds of years before it actually transpired. Fifth, he says, Jesus appeared to many. Uh, sometimes he would appear to an individual, he appeared to, to Mary. In the garden. But then he appeared to two and three and four. He appeared to small groups. Paul says, actually, he appeared at one point to 500 people all at the same time. Most of them are, are still alive. So if you want to ask them, you can't. Because they're still around. If they want to refute the fact that they saw this, they saw Jesus bodily resurrected in the flesh, you can look to them. Ask them. They're still around. Paul says, he actually appeared to me. And so I'm a, I'm a witness. I'm a witness. Of the resurrection. Word witness in Greek is the word martyr. I'm a martyr. I'm one who testifies. And I'll testify even to the point of death if I have to, that you should believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But many did not believe, they did not accept uh, the testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. Remember last week, if you were here with us, uh, we were celebrating Palm Sunday, which is that, that day when Jesus came in from uh, Bethany, and he went down through the Kidron Valley, and he's going up into Jerusalem, and the crowd that's with him are hailing him as Hosanna, the son of David, you know, Lord come, Lord save us. This is, this is David's son. He's the Messiah, and they're, they're excited about him. But remember, we noticed that, that that group was actually from Galilee. They were kind of the, uh, the Wild West. They were excited about Messiah and overthrowing Rome and everything. So they're, they're with Jesus, and they're tracking with him. But the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus, and they turned the hearts of the people against Jesus so they would crucify him. And so they didn't want Jesus to rise from the dead. And when they began to hear these rumors about Jesus being resurrected, they had to come up with a story to explain the fact that there wasn't a body in the tomb. Because everybody agreed there wasn't a body in the tomb. How do you explain no body? I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 28, In verse 11, Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. Now while the disciples were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and they reported to the chief priests all that had happened. That is that the body was gone, the stone was moved. And when they assembled, assembled all the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and they said to them, You are to say this. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, even as it is to this day. So the first story that circulated was this. The disciples stole the body. Now, I want to I set the stage for you again, right? Um, Jesus had predicted that he would rise from the dead, and some of the leadership, the establishment, realized that this was what he had predicted, and uh, they knew that he couldn't actually rise from the dead. But they didn't want the disciples to proclaim that he had risen from the dead, so they asked Pontius Pilate and said, "Please put a guard around that tomb and seal it with the Roman seal. Right? Make sure that they can't make something up about Jesus rising from the dead." And so Pilate agreed, and he commissioned sixteen soldiers. Right? This is a, a Roman guard is sixteen. Professional soldiers who who surrounded this sealed tomb of Jesus, but they said, "But you know, stone was moved. There's no body in the tomb." And the soldiers come in and say, well, "There's no body. We we lost the body," which means they're they're going to get it, like death, right? They're going to they're going to die. And the Jewish leadership they can't have this at all, either. So they said, "Well, I tell you what, um, we're we're, we're going to buy you off. We're gonna buy you off. Just say that." that the body was stolen by the disciples, which that's humiliating for the soldiers, right? Anyway, I mean, can you imagine? These are 16 professionally trained soldiers. So what would have had to happen is this. Um, These 16 men in the evening, they would rotate who got to sleep. So four would stay awake, and then the 12 others would fall asleep uh, right at their feet. If those four also had fallen asleep, they would have been killed. Lost the body, would have been killed. They would have been put to death for that. But here's how the story goes. There are, there are 12 professionally trained soldiers asleep here, four who are awake and alert, and either the disciples came and they beat them up, which probably couldn't happen, or no, they all, they all fell asleep, and then somehow the disciples tiptoed across them and silently moved the stone and took the body away. All right, let me give a, a little perspective on this for you, okay? This is a A picture of a typical tomb. This is the kind of tomb that Jesus would have been laid in. That stone is, it's about, uh, you know, maybe four feet tall or so. Um, It was in a channel, so there'd be a stone that was holding it up. Stones removed, it would roll down into that place. Uh, This is a pretty typical grave. I took this picture years ago. It's on the side of a road, a really wonderful illustration of a pretty common grave, but not all of them were the same size. There were some that were actually much larger. This is a friend of mine standing next to another gravestone. So imagine this. Again, they tiptoe around the 12 professionally trained soldiers. Don't wake any of them up. Silently move the stone and take the body of Jesus. I don't think so. I don't think that that's a reasonable explanation. But that was the story that was circulated around to explain why there was no body in the grave. Charles Colson once wrote this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible right? Absolutely impossible. For those of you who are a little younger, uh, Charles Coulson was one of the men embroiled in Watergate with Richard Nixon. He went to prison, and in prison he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons he became a believer in Jesus Christ was the credibility of this story that the tomb was empty. And it wasn't empty because the disciples stole the body and then made up a lie and then died for the lie. Remember who these disciples were, right? Just three days earlier, a similar Roman a group of Roman soldiers had come to arrest Jesus, and what had they done? Man, they were out, right? They bolted. One even was grabbed by the robe and ran away naked. He didn't care, man. They just, and then they hid for three days. They'd been in hiding for three days, and all of a sudden they work up their courage enough to, to bust through. We don't know if they're going to be asleep or awake, but we're going to take on those 16 soldiers, all 11 of us, fishermen and farmers and a tax collector, right? And then we're going to steal the body and we're going to lie about it to absolutely everyone. And we're going to keep that secret for 40 years, even if we have to suffer and be beaten and tortured and imprisoned and die for it. I don't think that's a reasonable explanation. It's not the only explanation that was offered. Another explanation that was offered is that the Jewish leaders themselves stole the body. But why? That They needed Jesus to stay in the grave so that Jesus wouldn't attract followers away from them. That doesn't make sense. Third story is the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Now, let's all acknowledge that some stereotypes exist because there's reality behind them. I don't like asking directions. Right? I don't. I I I confess and because and you know it's I just it's not cuz I'm really super proud. It's just cuz like I like figuring things out for myself. And I'm proud, and I don't want to admit that I can't find it, right? I, I get this. So, right, so it is possible that the first disciple started out, you know, and he, Peter, he goes, yeah, I know where the tomb is, you know? <laughs> and the other guy's like, he doesn't know where he's going, but we're not going to ask. We're not going to stop and ask, right? So some ter- stereotypes, it is possible they didn't know where the tomb was. However, the women would have told them, right? <laughs> I mean, there are other stereotypes that are true as well, right? The women would have said, what? Come? No, it's over here. Why didn't you just ask us, right? So, or the Jewish leaders would have said, No, it's not there, it's over here. Or Joseph of Arimathea, who owned the tomb, would have said, No, it's not here, it's over there. And not only that, I will tell you, it, literally, it would be impossible. To misplace a tomb in Jerusalem in that day, it really wasn't that big a place. Let me put it in perspective for you. It was about 425 acres in the, those days. So if you took the uh, approximately the golf course at AM and the pol- old polo fields, that area was Jerusalem. Right, so you could search the whole thing pretty easily in a day. So disciples went to the wrong tomb, maybe, but they would have been shown the right tomb very quickly. Uh, all the witnesses were delusional. They had a shared hallucination. Sometimes one person, sometimes two, sometimes four or five together. Sometimes five hundred. Five hundred people had a shared delusional hallucination experience. Well, if that was the case, then the Jewish leaders would have opened the tomb again and said, "No, here's the body. Here's the body." Fifth, Jesus woke up and escaped. Okay, he didn't actually. He didn't actually die. He just. He fainted. Right. Really? Jesus was was beaten with a whip until flesh came off of his back. Just torn into him. And then he had spikes driven through his feet, through his wrists, and he hung on a cross, exposed, completely naked, dehydrated. To make sure that he was dead, a spear was jammed into his side, blood and water poured out. Then he was taken down and he was placed in a cold, dark tomb with no food and no water for three days. But then he woke up and moved one of those stones all by himself. I don't think so. I became convinced um, was late high school, early college, as I wrestled through it, I became convinced that the most reasonable explanation for the empty tomb is what the four historical records say, and that is that Jesus was raised from the dead. I became convinced. Are you convinced? Are you convinced? There's more evidence. uh, There's more uh, validity. uh, And I think it's important for us to understand that, that faith isn't just this blind leap. I hope it's true. It's not wishful thinking. Uh, God has made us thinking people. The resurrection is a reasonable thing. I think it's the most reasonable explanation if you're still struggling with that. Um, A couple books that are a little more recent than uh, the one that I read, Reason for God by Timothy Keller, and there's Case for Faith and Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, I would encourage you not to just let the issue rest and say someday I'm gonna dig into this and kind of figure it out because if the resurrection is true, then Christianity is true, and Jesus died for your sins. You have a penalty that needs to be paid, and he did that for you, and you need to figure it out and trust in him. And maybe this morning, this, these ideas have begun to kind of push you more that direction, and you're ready to say to Jesus, Jesus, I believe, I believe that you died, and I believe that you rose from the dead for me. Thank you. And you don't have to do, say any magical prayer. You don't even have to necessarily close your eyes or get on your knees or bow your head. You can just cry out in your heart and say, God, I do. I need Jesus, and I need a Savior. I need someone who's died for me, I believe. I believe Jesus has died for me. The moment that you do that, that debt of sins is removed forever. And now you understand why God sent his son and why God raised his son from the dead. And I would encourage you, don't leave here without either believing or committing yourself to digging really deep to understand, is this true? I think it's true. I think it's real resurrection is true, I also became convinced that it's relevant. When I became deeply convinced in my heart that the, the resurrection was true, it changed the course of my life. I said, you know, if this is true, then, then I have something different to live for. And I think for a lot of believers, they become convinced it's true, and they trust in Jesus, but they don't make, turn that next step, take that next step, or turn that corner and say, you know, maybe life should be different. And so I want to give you uh, a few reasons why the gospel or the resurrection is relevant. Uh, oh, actually, let me give you a couple quotes first because not everybody agrees with me. I, and I stumbled across this a, a couple years ago and I thought it was a really uh, interesting perspective. It's by Marcus Borg. He's a New Testament, interesting, New Testament scholar uh, at uh, Oregon State University. He said this, "'As a child, I took it for granted that Easter meant that Jesus literally rose from the dead. I now see Easter very differently. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty.' Whether Easter involved something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. He says, you know, maybe he rose, maybe he didn't, but it doesn't really matter. I I think he's completely missed the point. John Updike, the poet, uh, contradicted that statement. He said, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit... The amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. There is no resurrection, there is no church. But because the resurrection is true, it changes absolutely everything about our lives. Let me give you a few reasons. First, through Christ's resurrection, your debt became transferable. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians again with me. Chapter 15, and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. In other words, Jesus didn't die for his own sins. Jesus died for our sins. It was a completely and perfectly innocent man who hung on the cross. What he was doing on the cross was bearing the weight of our sins. Our debt transferred to Jesus. Look at verse 16, chapter 15, verse 16. Paul writes, For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. He's stating it negatively, that is, if there is no resurrection, there is no payment of sins, right? Because his death is payment, but the resurrection is proof God said, I accept that payment. The resurrection in a sense is the receipt, paid in full. Nothing more needs to be done. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I went into Starbucks and I wanted to get a cup of coffee. And so I pulled out a gift card that I'd received at Christmas to pay for my coffee. And they said, "Uh, there's only three cents on this gift card. I don't know if you guys have had that experience, right? So I had to dig around. Okay, good. Fortunately, I have a credit card with me as well. I can pay. I didn't get my coffee until I had paid in full. And then when I paid in full, they handed me a receipt. It's paid. You can have this gift of life, (laughs) which is what many of us think, right? Here we go. Okay, we're good to go. Well, that's the resurrection. He died on the cross. Debt paid. Payment received? Was it adequate? That's the resurrection. All of your sins and all of my sins and every sin of every man and woman and child that has ever lived was paid for by Jesus Christ. His death on the cross was adequate to pay for absolutely every sin for all of eternity and his resurrection proves it. So the resurrection proves that your debt has been transferred to Jesus' second your death became temporary. Uh, you're going to die. You're going to die. And I know we want to talk about life on Easter, and it's a resurrection day, but I hope you're not surprised. <laughs> you're going to die. Statistics on death are impressive, right? We've said this before. One out of one. Everybody, everybody faces it. Now, the result for most people is fear. It's fear. There was a study done by uh, National Institute of Health It was like 2012, and uh, they did a little poll, and I think it was like 68% of people said that they were deeply afraid of death. Now, interestingly, 74% said they were afraid of speaking in public. (laughs) I go, really, it's not that bad. You're not going to die, and we'll bounce back. It's okay. I think that people underreport their fear of death. I've never talked to anybody who goes, yeah, I'm excited about it. Now there, there are people who say, you know, I'm ready. But man, I haven't known anybody who went over and came back and said, Don't be afraid. Well, except one. Right, there was Jesus. He said, No, you don't need to fear. Don't fear. Because I have overcome. I want you to read with me chapter fifteen, verse twenty. Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits Of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. What he's saying is we're born into this world dead or separated from God because of Adam, all that we inherited from Adam. As in Adam, we're all separated from God, but in Christ we can all be made alive. And we know that's true because he's the first fruits, right? He's the first one that proves that more will follow. And if death doesn't have any grip or hold over him any longer, then it doesn't have to have a hold over you. You will die, but you won't die forever, right? You'll you'll die physically, but you'll have life that goes on past that. I love these verses in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer says this, Therefore, since the children, that's you and me, right? We're, We're the children. We share in flesh and blood. That is, we're bodily creatures. We have a physical body. So Jesus himself also became flesh. He became a man. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh so that he was both God and man, and the reason that he became man was so that he could die. Right? He took on human life so that he could give up human life and die. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. They're even afraid to report that they're deeply afraid of death. Writer Jack Kerouac Once wrote, I'm young now, and I can look upon my body and soul with pride. But it will be mangled soon, and later it will begin to disintegrate. And then I shall die, and die conclusively. How can we face such a fact and not live in fear? Only if you have the resurrection. Only if you have the hope of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we should fear death. Because we don't know what's going to happen afterwards. But if there is resurrection, that is, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we know that we too will have life. Third, through Christ's resurrection, your future became hopeful. Look at verse 42. Paul says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown. That is, your body is put into the ground. It's sown like a seed. A perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you know you will get a resurrection body. And it'll be a body that's like Jesus. And what Jesus had after the resurrection was a a real body. His disciples recognized him, he was able to eat food, right? But he had a body that wasn't subject. To death any longer right it wasn't he wasn't going to get sick and get diseased and decay he had a body Paul says that was imperishable it's a glorified body it's a spiritual body he says it's a, it's a body that's completely different it's going to actually be glorious Yet, Jesus gave a, a little prefiguration of what his body would be like on the mount of transfiguration where they saw him and he was glowing and he was beautiful book of Daniel the prophet says you know what those who believe will be just like him Bodies that, that don't grow old and don't decay and don't get injured and never heal. These are bodies that will be beautiful and glorious, And but it'll be you. Right? Your body as you were designed to be. So we have hope because we get a resurrection body. We don't only, only get a resurrection body, though. We get a resurrection mind. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 12. 13, verse 12, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... But then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Right now, my mind doesn't work perfectly. Why, why do we get in arguments? Right, we look at the same data, the same facts, but we don't disagree. We don't agree on them. Why is that? Because we reason to wrong conclusions. Because even the mind was affected by the fall. I have a friend. He's a believer. He's a very rational kind of guy, and he says, "No, everything else was affected by the fall, but not our reason." I "Really?" Said, "I don't agree," and that proves it. We're looking at the same set of data, but we're not reaching the same conclusion. Why is it that people who are so incredibly intelligent can say no to Jesus? Because our capacity to reason has been damaged by the fall, but in the resurrection, we get not just a resurrection body, we get a resurrection mind. We'll always think rightly. We'll always reason to the right conclusion. We will also have uh, resurrection emotions. You ever known a person who well, they just don't they don't react appropriately to the situation, right? They're either too angry or too happy or too too it's none, none of us, right? But we have friends who they're just man, you're not corresponding to the reality of this particular moment. Now in the resurrection, we'll feel the way we should feel about everything. So resurrection body, resurrection mind, resurrection emotion, resurrection will. If you ever really wanted to do something you know it's the right thing and man, you just, you don't. You just keep doing this thing over here and then you say, but I'm not going to do that thing any longer. I'm just going to do the right thing. And man, and then you don't, right? And you feel torn. You ever felt that? Ever? Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. Yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. Good, we got a response down front. The only honest people. Sure, man, we feel torn, right? But in the resurrection, we will have one will, not a divided will. Purity of heart, Kierkegaard wrote, is to will one thing. To know that right thing to do. To want that right thing. And to be able to do it every single time. Resurrection body, resurrection mind, resurrection emotion, resurrection will. Resurrection relationships. You had in conflicts recently? Like on the way to church, maybe? <laughs> Imagine all of your relationships working well harmonious. You're kind to each other. You're forgiving one another. You understand one another. Man, that'd be a beautiful thing. Resurrection opportunities. Heaven is not your resurrection body becoming a chubby baby and it floats on a cloud playing harp. I mean, you know, how unattractive is that image to all of us? That's that's not heaven. Heaven is fulfillment. Okay, you, as you were designed to be, doing the things you were designed to do. And so you're, you're constantly facing new challenges that intrigue you and draw you in. You're constantly learning. I mean, for eternity, can you imagine learning? I, to me, that's like, when I take all these profiles and stuff, top on my is learner, I think, wow, I get to learn forever? How cool is that? And uh, there's an infinite God. And so every single day, I will get to wake up and learn something even greater about God. And I will have challenges that fit my talents and my gifting and my desire. And I'll get to do all those things and chase after them for all of eternity. The resurrection changes absolutely everything in your future. But it also changes your present. Right? It's not just way off here, but it, it, it makes the present meaningful and significant. Verse 32 of chapter 15, Paul quotes a pagan author who said, If the dead are not raised then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He said, really, that's the only wise way to live. (laughs) I mean, if there is no resurrection, then really you should go for all the pleasure you can possibly get right now. But if there is a resurrection, then that changes the significance of life. What is that significance? If I can, have the choir come up. They're going to lead us as we close. You guys come up and get settled in. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, then just live for the moment. But there is a resurrection, so there is an eternity, so how should I live? I should live like Paul lived. He said, I'm, I'm a witness of these things. and I, I've believed for myself, but I have friends and family who they don't understand or they're not convinced. And so now I have this little short window of time on earth. It's a breath. It's a breath. It's a vapor. And I get to live to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Men and women, this is why the church is still here. For all of eternity, we'll worship better and we'll sing better. We'll do all kinds of things better. But we won't have this opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ. So right now, we have the calling to be witnesses. We testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's life in him and there's life nowhere else. It's not just true it's not just real but it's relevant it changes everything about our lives father i do pray that we would live in this reality of the resurrection we would be hopeful for ourselves we'd be passionate about our friends and family who don't know your son jesus pray that this would lift up our hearts constantly in praise and dependence upon you give us courage and boldness and strength jesus name Go in the power and the strength of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and be a blessing to those all around you. Don't forget, God has called you to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. God bless you. We'll see you next week.